0: Jane Clayson Johnson is an award-winning journalist widely known for her work at CBS News, ABC News, and on the nationally syndicated NPR program On Point. For more than two decades, she traveled the world covering domestic and international stories and interviewing the biggest newsmakers of the day. At CBS News, Jane was a co-anchor of The Early Show, a regular correspondent for 48 Hours, and an investigative reporter for Eye on America, segments for the CBS Evening News. In 2018, Jane Clayson Johnson published her book, Silent Souls Weeping, sharing an open and frank exploration of her own experience with clinical depression. She goes on to share stories gathered from interviews with more than 150 men, women, and teens who have suffered from depression. Today, Jane and I have a very candid, open conversation about both of our experiences with depression, what she's learned from interviewing others, and her advice to those suffering from the same trial in life or to those with loved ones who suffer with mental illness. Okay, today I have someone on the podcast who I've looked up to for a long time. Jane, I don't know if you know this, but I was a broadcast journalism student at BYU. (laughs) So I've admired you from afar for a very long time. Professionally, and now just your story means so much to me too. So I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank and you, thank you so much, Corinne. Well, I should tell you. you, thank you. Um, I didn't know that you were that we shared a sort of professional uh, connection, but I have to tell you that Corinne is my very favorite name of all time. <laughs> so oh. I just love your name. So there's a little offside uh, shoot uh, to to start us off. Thanks That's for having so me nice. today.
0: Yes, thank you for being here. So, and we said this in the intro, but for those who don't know, can you tell us just a little bit professionally, you know, what your work has been like um with your career and your family, just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we can get into your story.
1: Sure. So, um I uh worked for many years um uh, as a journalist. Um most recently in New York City, um I hosted a morning program, uh, the morning program on CBS with Bryant Gumbel called The Early Show, Um, and on that program, I had the opportunity to interview um, presidents and prime ministers and movie stars and authors and um, just sort of big newsmakers of the day, and it was really an extraordinary gift for me to... Um, be able to to do that. Before that, I worked at ABC News, a um, correspondent based in Los Angeles, um, where I worked on World News Tonight and other ABC programs. I traveled internationally for ABC. I covered the NATO airstrikes in Kosovo and the refugee crisis in Macedonia. Um, the the fall of the Suarto government in Indonesia. I covered the O.J. Simpson trial, for those of your listeners who are old enough to remember that, which was a big deal. I remember, deal. <laughs> yes. And um, and before that, I uh, worked at KSL Television in Salt Lake City um, after graduating from Brigham Young University uh, with a degree in journalism and music. I actually went to college on a music scholarship, on a violin scholarship, and then found my way to journalism, I'd always love to write and I'd always love to tell stories. And so that's kind of how I found my way um, to journalism. And since I left uh, New York, um, I have worked at um, at the NPR station here in Boston, very part-time. I fill in for the host on a nationally syndicated um, program, uh, NPR program called On Point. So I left New York uh, because i I desperately wanted to have a family and to be a mother. And so I left that world sort of full-time, um, and came to Boston where my husband lived. And we have two children, um, now teenagers, um, almost 15 and 16. They're in high school now. And um, and I have three older stepkids. Um, my husband joined the church when he was 36 and had three little children. And so we have a very full life. We have four little grandchildren now, although I don't feel old enough to have grandbabies, but I am. Wow. <laughs> well, but so, your,
0: your yeah. own children are teenagers, so... That's right. Yes. That is a remarkable, okay, I can't even believe how similar, I mean, I don't want to say that my career path is anywhere similar to yours because I haven't done any of that really remarkable news casting. I kind of left my broadcast journalism days in the dust, but, um, but I also started out my days at BYU on a piano scholarship. So in the oh. music department and did three semesters of piano performance. And then I said, this is too hard. So, <laughs> um, switched over to broadcast journalism. So that's really well, fun. That's to so f- funny. Yeah. What well, a fun you know, fact. I,
1: I thought of it. Um, it was hard. And I remember those days like you probably, you know, in the Harris fine arts Center down in the yep. dungeon practice rooms, practice you know, rooms. for hours <laughs> at a time and three, four, five, sometimes more hours. And I played in the Philharmonic, I played in the chamber orchestras and, you know, I just, after at some point I wanted it to be, um, uh, something that I enjoyed doing, not something that I felt pressure to do, and I guess I just wasn't good enough to push myself that that much every day. And I did, but I um, after a while, I and I still love to play. Um, but I I had a different path set out, as did you, for our lives, and everything works out for everybody in their own way, right?
0: Yes, I so agree. Totally believe in that. So tell me about your story with depression, because. I have to tell you too, as someone who sat back and admired your career and who you were as a working woman who also raised children and was a member of the same church as me, there were so many, you know, aspects of your life that I admired. Looking from afar, thinking, "Wow, she is, she has it all together," and then and and now I admire you even more in a different way for sharing your story. And um, but I I want to talk about you know, how your journey of what happened to you with depression and discovering that, and then why you decided to share that.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak about this important uh, subject. Um, I I guess my own journey, um, with depression was, uh, unexpected Mm -hmm. and harrowing. Um, I, I guess throughout my life, I describe it as, you know, situational sadness. I mean, just the ups and downs of life, right? And I had them like everybody else has them, uh, but nothing that a good cry or two or three, right, couldn't get me out of. Yep. But when I um, fell into a clinical depression, it was different. <laughs> it was very, very different, and it was very physical for me. I mean, I... I use words like drowning and choking and sinking and suffocating because I just felt it with every cell of my being. I just felt like a different person. I felt like my brain had been hijacked in a way that I couldn't, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And. It was like, you know, someone had thrown me into a burlap sack and tossed me into a lake and I just, I couldn't get out. And the more I tried, the worse it got until, um, I started, I started thinking that my husband would be so much better off with a different wife, that my little children deserved so much more than me and, um, and, and I frankly wanted to fall asleep and fade away. And I and I didn't have a, a mechanism for making that happen. It was just that I I was clinically depressed. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to fall asleep and, and fade away and not wake up. And finally, my husband um, took me to a doctor. He actually took me to two doctors. And... They helped me realize that what, in fact, my children needed was was me, the real me, and not this person who'd been hijacked by a terrible illness. And my husband needed me, his wife, uh, to be a partner with him and not to be in bed all day um, because I was so sick. And so we started getting the process of treatment and help, and I went on medication for a stretch, and I started to feel better. And um, after I had gone through a lot of therapy and decided that I was going to talk to people about sort of what had happened to me, and as I started conversations with others, I started to realize how many people like me had suffered or are suffering and who didn't talk about it because they were too embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, huh, (laughs) that's that's just not right. Uh, why are we all hiding this? You know, why are we all sort of so ashamed that we can't talk about depression? Like we would talk about, I don't know, a thyroid imbalance or kidney stones or heaven forbid a cancer diagnosis, you know, it's, it's a physical condition. And so I I embarked upon this journey to write my book and I took my journalism skills and I decided I was going to put them to use. And I interviewed, More than 150 people with, uh, and hundreds of stories later, uh, came out with Silent Souls Weeping to try to break the stigma. My number one goal was to break the stigma of mental illness.
0: So I found out about your book, Silent Souls Weeping, actually from my grandfather, who is, Uh. uh, he still practices law a little bit, but he's kind of a retired patent attorney. And as is my dad. And he sends us cliff notes from books quite often in our email (laughs) and he, what he'll do, he doesn't even really do email. He dictates, he's just like, um, president Oaks in our church, but he dictates things and then his secretary types them up and sends them out via email to our family. So he read your book and then, you know, picked out all of his favorite quotations, sent them to our family And I remember getting it in my email and thinking, oh, wow, this is someone that I remember, you know, knowing a lot about in my studies for broadcast journalism. And I thought this is really interesting. And someday I need to read this. And I kind of shelved it in my mind. And then I had my fourth baby this year during COVID and I, yeah, and I had had postpartum depression with my first And then baby blues with my second and third, but my first, it was more like I would cry every day. And then my doctor helped me and said, let's put you on some medication and help you. And, and I got through that, but it was mostly just feeling really sad and weepy a lot with my fourth baby and he's my only boy. So I had three girls and then a boy, and I don't know if there's anything scientific behind that or not, but it was a completely different experience where so much of what you described with, it was physical. It was completely, I was a different person. I would look in the mirror and think I don't recognize myself. Um, I did like a photo journal so I could remember what it looked like to lay in bed every day and not recognize myself and feel like I physically could not. It was my husband would have to bring meals to me in bed and my, and, and my, what we planned on being, um, We had planned on my maternity leave being like six weeks or something, and it turned into three or four months because I just was pretty dysfunctional. And um, anyway, I remembered while I was the first few just really dark weeks of suffering through that and resisting medication and not wanting to go down that path because I hated the way it made me feel the first time, I remembered that my grandpa had sent these quotations So I ordered your book on Amazon and it was an incredible help to me to feel like, okay, I'm not crazy and I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad mom because I'm laying in bed and, um, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's how I knew that you wrote this book was because my grandpa shared it with me.
1: What a story, Corinne. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I, I really appreciate it. And I, it's so interesting because, um, You don't have to dig very deep beneath the surface of conversations with people to realize that everybody has a story. Everybody has an experience. For you, it was postpartum depression in a very significant and difficult and and in some ways devastating way. For others, it's, you know, a child, a, a, a teenager or preteen who suffers. For others, it's, you know, suicidal ideation or in fact, suicide of a family. You know, someone is suffering in your world in your family, amongst your friends. And the more we have compassion and understanding for stories like you just told me, the more we can start to understand that there are ways to help and there are treatments and we don't, it doesn't have to last forever. and it's, um, it's healthy it's therapeutic even to talk about these things. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm I'm glad it sounds like you're doing a bit better. Uh, it's sure a journey though, isn't it?
0: Yes. Doing so much better, although it does come and go still. And I, yeah. I've been really impatient with it at times thinking, and I, I have like this obsession that I'll talk to my therapist about saying, when is this going to be over? And she's like, The more you resist it, the worse it will be. So you kind of just, you know.
1: The more um, you push it away, the more you don't want to talk about it, the more you sort of deny it, the worse it gets, right? Right,
0: right, exactly. I want to go to something that you shared in your book. I loved this. Um, You shared some people, well, this is a quotation from... Uh, Christianity Today, some people have been told that they ought to pray more to snap out of it, or they just need more faith. But what they actually need is a healing and accepting community. I was shocked how little the church talked about these problems. The church needs to foster a culture that means that this topic can be discussed if it needs to be. They need to be clear that they are mental health friendly. And I want to talk about your number one goal with this and not just with the church or a church, but just in general, how we need to be mental health friendly and why you want to change that stigma. Why was that important to you? Why is that a passion of yours?
1: Right. So I guess I would say it's a passion because of my own experience in realizing um, the effects and the impact of mental health challenges. Well, let me put it this way. There were two themes. There were two strong themes that emerged in all the many interviews that I did over the course of three years. By the way, I worked on this book wow. for three years. <laughs> it took up a significant portion of my time and resources, you know, getting every interview transcribed. And, you know, my husband was very supportive of all this. But there were, in all those interviews, there were two subjects that came up over and over again. The first is stigma. Stigma. Mm-hmm. Which we've sort of talked about, you know, this common, this common thread I found running through every conversation: this sense of embarrassment, shame, um, attached not only to to a mental health diagnosis but to the therapy <laughs> required for treatment and the medication, right? Too. So, I think that's a really important thing to tackle which is a big theme of mine but the second um, big focus of mine but the second theme in the interviews was what depression does to our our spiritual selves and whether or not you go to a church a church any church I think you can understand and appreciate a connection to something greater than yourself right a spiritual component and so for me that that was a huge element of my own journey, sort of the inability to feel the spirit, to feel connected with God. And I, you know, I remember growing up being taught that if you're doing what's right and you're following the commandments and you know you're generally a good person then you're living by the spirit and you're happy mm-hmm. and conversely if you're dark or sad or not social or whatever then maybe you've done something wrong in your life and you need to repent and mm-hmm. you know I, some people have even been taught that if as you say if you just pray harder that depression and mental illness will go away right to which to which i say Would you sit in a corner and pray your heart disease away? Right. Of course you wouldn't. <laughs> or cancer. <laughs> or cancer or anything. a broken you would, bone. Right. You would pray and you would go to the doctor. For heart disease, you would go to the cardiologist. For cancer, you go to an oncologist. For you know a broken bone, you would go to an orthopedist. For mental health issues, you go to a psychiatrist or a counselor or someone who can help you, right? It's, it's the same principle. Mm-hmm. And so I quoted a psychiatrist in my book who said, depression is a disease. It's not a spiritual deficit. And mm, so I love I I, lo- I just I implore people and plead with people to understand that this is not something that you've done. You have not brought this on yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh you know I'm all for for positive thinking and um you know doing the right thing and jumping out there and getting into every situation and pulling up your bootstraps but when it comes to depression and mental illness issues it's more than pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and kind of going at it alone and, you know, put your shoulder to the wheel and push on and Mm -hmm. no, you know, no, we have to understand that the impact of emotional and mental health issues is as significant as any physical condition. So, um, so that's my that's my plea and that's my journey really um, in my life now with this book.
0: I remember my therapist telling me once when I was explaining to her, I feel so lame. I feel so lame that I'm laying in this bed. I can't be a good mom. I can't do what I need to do. I need to be working. I need, I need. And she said, Corinne, did you hear yourself? You just said you're lame. And I was like, yeah, I know. I <laughs> I know. I'm aware of that. She said, no. What does lame mean? She said that that is the same thing as you can't walk. She said, You need to realize that it's as if you had two broken legs. Right. You can't, you don't have the energy to walk downstairs. I mean, it was just, I have never experienced anything like this season of postpartum depression that I've had this past year. Um, And I will tell you, I don't know if you've watched it, but the show This Is Us, mm-hmm. I was. Watching that, just trying to get through the end of my pregnancy, trying to just, you know, pass that last little bit of being miserable. And I remember watching an episode where they showed one of the main characters, Toby, laying in bed. And I remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, like really – It's that bad that you just have to lay in bed. And I've kind of always thought that way. And it is part of that stigma, the society, how we talk about people, how we talk about mental illness and depression until it happened to me. Exactly. And it was me laying in bed feeling like I am so lame. And then my therapist, who wisely told me Corinne, you literally are lame. This is a physical condition. You need to respect it. You need to understand it for what it is. So
1: I to- Well, what a good therapist you have to identify that in your, in your own language and to make that connection. Yes. You know, I, I have a chapter in my book um, for people who have not experienced depression, someone like my husband, who's very even and steady and never kind of gets upset and never kind of, you know, and so he was looking at me during all of this thinking- what is happening happening to you and Mm -hmm. what is wrong with you? (laughs) And, you know, and so this whole process for him, has been a real education and and he's very supportive and just a wonderful man. But, you know, for those who have not experienced this, like you said, you had no idea what this was like until it happened to you. I've talked to many people who say, you know, I just had this notion that people just needed to buck up yeah. until it happened to me. And then boy, uh, uh, no, I couldn't buck up. And so I just wanted to add this one thing before we move on. You know, I, i like to rephrase the issue corinne instead of talking about mental health i like to talk about brain health <laughs> because yes let's let's start that. talking about the brain as another mm-hmm. organ of the body right yes. just like we welcome discussions about heart health let's talk about brain health as a critically important component of of real health And, um, and full and complete health. So whether you've experienced this or not, um, truly brain health is something we all should be concerned about.
0: I love that so much. And it's so true that it's almost like a little more forgiving when you say it in that way. It doesn't feel so personal. It feels more clinical.
1: Right. That's right. And it's nobody's fault. Yes. (laughs) It's it's nobody's fault, including your own, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. I love that. And I, gosh, with the stigma too, before we move on to that, I remember growing up around people who would say like, oh, happy Valley is where, you know, all these women take all these happy pills because there's this, there's too much pressure to be happy. And, and I think that was something I grew up around, um, with just people talking and not knowing any better. And I think we're doing better now, but I think that when I grew up in the eighties, I heard people say stuff like that all the time. Um, right? And I think that that we're changing, but there's still some of that that's like, oh, if you take medicine, then you're failing. Or I even thought too, before I started this and my doctor really encouraged me, you need to do talk therapy. And I thought, no, talk therapy. That's what I did after I got divorced. That's what right. I've done for really, really traumatic things in my life. There's no trauma that happened here. This is just this weird thing that- That's for I failure,
1: right? When you yes, fail something, yes. you need to talk it through and figure out what you did wrong. And mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep. yep. And let's talk about, you know, the elephant in the room or the, right. the big scary monster that you went through and face your demon. And I was like, there's nothing to talk about. And then, oh my gosh, I was- it was just such a surprise to me when I found that I needed talk therapy twice a week to start to feel better. And my therapist helped me so much to know exactly what you're talking about with brain health and that she helped me to be more gentle with myself to see that there were things in my brain that needed to be healed. There were, and even taking the medicine was going to help my brain to function better, just like, you know, a broken leg needs a cast. And that was really helpful for me. I want to ask you about a little bit about the stigma and how perfectionism affects that because you talk about that in your book. And I feel like what you shared was so helpful for me too. And for, I think it's ironic that a lot of times people who get hit really hard with depression are those who feel like if I just work a little bit harder, this is going to go away.
1: Right. Well, I think, um, for so long, there have been a lot of cultural and historical misconceptions about depression, mm-hmm. about mental health issues, and we've had a very judgmental view of it all. And I think for also for a long time, it's been perceived as some sort of character flaw. Yes, You know, something we could control or overcome if we just tried harder. I remember uh, one woman who suffered with a very serious uh, depressive episode that lasted almost a year. I talk about her in my book, um, where she couldn't leave her bedroom. Uh, This was a very accomplished woman um, who she was just really very ill. And I remember she said to me, too bad I can't wear a cast on my head because (laughs) something is broken in there. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for people to understand, right? Just like if you'd wear a cast on your arm, as we have discussed, you know, people would know, oh, she's got a broken bone. You can't put a cast on your head as this woman hoped she could do, wish she could do so that people could see that something is wrong, right? right? So I like to say, you know, when it comes to the stigma um, of, of mental illness, um, that depression is not the result of some sort of personal inadequacy. It is not a black mark on your character. Nobody thinks that, um, you know, battling any other serious uh, illness is a matter of sort of, you know, just doing your best and, you know, you're not going to fix this with work and discipline. You have to get uh, treatment. And I, I remember a very profound story that kind of illustrates this point. I talked, interviewed, talked to two sisters who were hospitalized at the same time, one for a uh, pretty significant and advanced cancer and one for depression and mm-hmm. suicidal ideation, which means she wanted to take her own life. She, um, she wanted to die. And what was devastating to me was how differently these women were treated by family and friends. For the sister with cancer, just an outpouring of love and support and meals and visits. And she so richly deserved it. I mean, it was just an awful situation. But for the sister with depression... Uh, And suicidal thoughts, you know, nothing even close to that. And even from people who loved her, you know, uh, it was just kind of a judgment like, oh, there she goes again, you know, back in the hospital. Um, And the truth of the matter is that each of these women was quite literally fighting for her life with two different but life-threatening physical conditions yeah right. So I love that story because it's so emblematic of 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 what I see or have seen with mental health and mental illness as compared to physical illness. The other story I would share would be um, one of many in my book. There was a, a woman named Lori who was diagnosed with depression and anxiety in college. And she was so embarrassed and ashamed about this, partly because of uh, some family history of mental illness and kind of what that meant to her in her own mind. Mm-hmm. And finally, after you know several weeks of not being out, be able to get out of bed and not being able to do her schoolwork in college, she went to the campus health center. And the doctor diagnosed her with, with depression and gave her some medication and Lori went home and she flushed the pills down the toilet. She said, I felt like this was a weakness Mm -hmm. that I could will myself out of, that I should be able to fix this myself. And so she kind of went on with her life and had many difficult years after that until finally she, you know, she got married and After a baby was born, here she went again, as you have experienced into a terrible postpartum Mm -hmm. depression, and talked to her doctor finally and got the help that she needed because she was open to it, because she realized that this life she was living was not sustainable. And what I love about Lori's story is how, um, how evolved or how the evolution in her thinking Uh, progressed right at one time she was embarrassed and ashamed now she talks easily and openly about her journey with depression and because she does she has helped a lot of people uh, along the way she has inspired people to get help and so I just I cannot emphasize enough um, how important it is if you're suffering, if you know someone who is suffering, if you have a child or a spouse or a parent who's suffering, you know, to not be afraid of it and not to be ashamed of it. And the more you open up, the more you know the chain, the, the domino effect kind of happens. And when you're open about it, some, it gives permission for someone else to be too. And that yes. quite literally, Corinne. It quite literally can save someone's life.
0: Yeah, it is remarkable how many, as I've talked about this on Instagram, how many women have come to me and and told me that they're experiencing similar things. and And for me, I knew where to turn because I had A doctor who was checking in on me and I had those doctor appointments already scheduled as they wisely do, I kind of think that we could probably use even more checkups, but at least, you know, the two week and the six week after you have a baby with your um, OBGYN. But for someone who's listening to this, who doesn't have an automatic setup of, you know, okay, I know I have a doctor appointment coming up and I could talk to my doctor then Where do you tell people to turn if they're reading this book of yours or they're listening to this podcast and they're like, I think that I'm experiencing those things?
1: Well, it's a great question and I'm really glad that you brought it up. I think sometimes um, the easiest first step is to open up to someone with whom you're close, Mm -hmm. a, a dear friend, a sister, a mother. Um, someone in your church, a neighbor, if you can just get the courage to reach out and to ask for help um, and to say I'm struggling, sometimes that's the hardest first thing to say, I am really struggling. Yeah And if if you can do that, that will be a lifeline for you initially. What you really need to do is talk to a doctor, talk to, Maybe the first step for you is your primary care doctor who can refer you to a counselor or to a therapist or to a licensed clinical social worker or someone who can, you know, kind of help you uh, navigate this path. And if you're someone who is being reached out to, please, please um, listen. Mm -hmm. and help and offer to make a phone call to, you know, um, a community health clinic, to the campus health center, to your own doctor, to get a reference for a friend or for a, uh, you know, someone that you love. I just, there are resources out there. And, and I, I will also admit and acknowledge that sometimes it's very hard to find a therapist, a good therapist. Yeah. sounds like you had a really good therapist, Corinne, and I have had good therapists and I have had really bad therapists. Same, same. And
0: I, I always yeah. say bad therapy is worse than no therapy. Yeah. Like, I think it's I know. hard, but I, I mean, know. so what has been your experience? Cause I'm sure tons of people ask you in finding a good therapist.
1: So um, part of it is networking, to be perfectly honest. Um, And I, you know, I I have had people since I've written this book and I've been really open in my own community. I just had a mom call me two days ago, um, you know, asking for resources and, and for a doctor for her own teenager. And so I was able to give her a couple of names and. And I said, and you should call this friend. You should call her because I know her daughter has struggled too. And maybe she can help you with another, you know, so it's like, it's, it's a simple kind of, I know it sounds like a lot of work and this is why you need an advocate, why you need someone who can help you often um a spouse or you know someone close to you, it's almost keeping a spreadsheet. It's almost just getting a piece of paper and saying, all right, I called Jane. She gave me these two names. I called my other friend and she gave me this name. And then you just got to start getting on the phone and you just got to start calling and connecting with people and, and trying to find a way to get help. Um, there's just no other way. And our healthcare system unfortunately is set up in a very uh, dysfunctional, I think <laughs> a very dysfunctional way when it comes to mental health services. So
0: yeah.
1: keep pushing and keep plowing forward and don't give up, but no, it's not an easy road. Um, but, but, and you can still find your way and it's possible to get a good fit and it's possible to find a good doctor for you. You just have to keep going and keep trying. Yes.
0: Yes. You mentioned teens a second ago, so I want to circle back to that and just talk about your experience with interviewing teens. And you talk about that in your book and parents of teens. And what's your advice there?
1: Oh well, you you really know how to cut right to the heart of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, one of my chapters in my book is uh, about kids and teens who suffer um, with mental health challenges, and Mm -hmm. part of the reason. Um, another part of the reason that I wrote this book is because um, of the experience in my own family and my own daughter who has really um, suffered with um, with anxiety, uh, debilitating anxiety and, and, and other mental health challenges. Um, so um, gosh, where to start. <laughs> I mean, I've lived this in a pretty significant way uh, over the last, two years myself Um, and I think what's challenging about dealing with depression or anxiety with a child is that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between regular sort of teenaged angst Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know teenagers like to sleep a lot and they're kind of, you know, hormonal and Moody. um, (laughs) moody. And how do you know, you know, what do you, what's, what's real and what's not and what's normal and what's not. And I think, um, I think having resources, you know, I talk about a lot of this in my book about what to look out for and kind of what you should do, what the red flags are. Um, but dealing with a child who is suffering is one of the most uh, exhausting experiences that a parent could have, um, because it's one thing to to, to deal with an adult um, who may recognize and acknowledge and understand what's happening in their lives, but uh, for a child, it's very confusing and disorienting and, and frankly, um, scary um, for, both, for both the parent and the child, so I I have such empathy uh, for moms and and dads who who struggle with this and who have this um, that they have to deal with. And I would just say, you cannot give up. You cannot give up. And you are your child's hope. And (laughs) so as hard as it is, um, please keep going and please keep making the calls and please keep finding the right resources and the right programs and the right doctors. Um, because, um, your child, your child's life will, will really depend on it. Um, and, and, and I know it's, it's just as hard. It's just as hard as anything that you'll experience in your life.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I I mean, I'm just grateful that you are willing to share your personal experiences because I know it's affecting so many of my friends who have teenagers. And so if you have a friend who you know, or you see these signs, or you suspect that they are depressed or have anxiety, or maybe they've openly talked about it, how can you support someone who is dealing with mental health issues?
1: Well, sometimes, see, because I I didn't used to be like this, but I am, I will go up to them and I will start start a conversation with them. And sometimes people are defensive and they push back and sometimes they're more open. But either way, either way, if I sense, it's like I have radar now, I can see Mm -hmm. that person who who is um, having a hard time, who is a little bit more inward focused or sort of, um, you know, to themselves than they used to be, I will just go over and I'll start talking to them and I'll tell you what, people just need a friend. Sometimes, you know, when you can see someone struggling, if you can just reach out, if you can make the outreach, if you have a sense or a hunch or just a feeling that something isn't right, there, that feeling is there for a reason. So follow up on it and, mm-hmm. and, and do it and go over and have a conversation. And I'm very blunt. I mean, I just, I use myself as an example and I'll say, you know, I can see that you are, I can see you're having a hard day because I've had hard days like this and I have felt like you and I feel like I've been through it. Um, can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I be a resource for you? And let me tell you my own story. Sometimes it's hard for people to share their own story first. Mm-hmm. So if you can be the one to initiate, if you can be the one to reach out and say, here's what happened to me. And yeah. let me tell you the time where I was fantasizing about my own funeral. Let me tell you about the time where in my head, I was picking out the flowers and who would speak and the and the chapel full of people. And let me tell you about the time where you know, I... I contacted a a woman and had her come over and, you know, and told her that if I wasn't around, I want you to, you know, I want you to marry my husband and raise my children. You know, these are very difficult um, things to talk about. But Mm -hmm. when you do, you open the gate for someone else to share what's happening in their lives and you open the door for them to share difficult things. So please don't be afraid to share your own experience um, because it p- gives permission for someone else to share theirs.
0: Yeah, that's so powerful. What if they are flaky, they don't
1: respond to the first time you try to talk to them? You just got to keep going. You just yeah. got to keep going. I mean, you just got to keep trying and... Um, Sometimes it's a note, sometimes it's a phone call, sometimes it's a text, sometimes it's just, you know, these are not big acts. This is not, you know, preparing a big dinner for someone. This is just, you know, ping, I'm here for you, ping, Mm -hmm. you know, how can I help? What can I do? I was thinking about you today. Um, It's just as simple as that. And it's harder now in many ways, right? It's sometimes, in some ways it's harder, but in some ways it's easier um, because we I don't know about you, but I, you know, we're not in, in church, uh, in our church services except yeah. for once, once a month, you know, we're in I, California. So same here. Yep. Yep. You know, we see, my, but we do see, you know, neighbors, uh, more because we're all outside and we're walking around a little bit more. And so there are, you know, there are benefits to this and there are downsides to all of this, um, pandemic, Um, But I do think it's a lonely time for a lot of people. And I do think a lot of people are are sad and, and alone. So it sure is a good opportunity to to reach out and say, I'm here for you.
0: Well, I, I love your advice and to just keep trying because I had one friend who during this, she could kind of see really what I was going through and had been there herself. And the thing that I appreciated the most was that she just kept even the first couple of times where I was, I was too sick to get out of bed and go on a walk. She would continue to text me and say, do you feel up to going on a walk today? Hey, I'm going on a walk. Do you want to come with me? And, um, she just didn't give up on me. Yes. and that one friend, Amy, if she ever listens to this, she was that one friend who didn't give up on me, who just kept popping into my text messages every few days. Hey, it's a beautiful day. you want to go on a walk? And that was life-saving for me.
1: We need more Amys in this world, you know, yeah. we need more Amys who are just willing to to just keep. Keep going. And because Amy sensed something because I think you said she'd been through it. Right. Yep. And so she knew. And so for those of us who have been through this, we have a unique responsibility, I think, a unique responsibility and opportunity to reach out and help others, Um why why else go through all this <laughs> why exactly. else go through all this pain and heartache mm-hmm. if not to share our our learning and our wisdom with someone else and to be um to to, to be someone else's savior to be someone else's helper along yep. the way why else go through all this <laughs> yeah.
0: you know and that's and really that's what the savior expects of us and that's his biggest ask is just to love one another, to do that for someone else. When someone's done that for you, you turn around when you're well and when you're ready and do it for someone else.
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: Okay, we have covered so many amazing things and yet there were so many good things too from your book that I have highlighted and marked and wanted to talk to you about. So people are just gonna need to read your book because it's (laughs) so incredible. But I have one last question for you and that is if there's one message that the person listening to this remembers, what do you want that one message to be?
1: That you're valued and that your, that your life is meaningful and that you have so much to offer. And if you are struggling with mental health issues yourself, um, you're not alone you are not alone, and there are other people out there who have walked your path, and who have walked it successfully. And it's not without pain, and it's not without heartache. But there is hope, and there is help. And if you are are living with someone, or you know someone who is struggling, please, please be, um, please be their light. Please be their um, support please be their shoulder to lean on um, because we all need each other and everyone struggles with something. (laughs) They just do. And some challenges are, are more obvious and some are invisible. And for those of us who are struggling with invisible challenges, um, that's okay. They're real, um, but you're meaningful and you're valuable and we need you and um, we love you. So Thank that's you. my message.
0: Thank you so much for that. That was beautiful. Um, where can people find you or your book or or get more of this information that you've shared?
1: Uh, well, uh, my book is available on Amazon, Silent Souls Weeping, um, Depression, Sharing Stories and Finding Hope. And that's the subtitle. And um, I'm available through my website, uh, Silent Souls Weeping. Uh, com and I answer questions or outreach there. So okay. thank you so much, Corinne. I, I'm really grateful for your goodness and I have felt it uh, before this podcast and, and during it and your willingness to talk about these important things.
0: Thank you so much, Jane. And thanks for your time today too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages.